there was this like brief window where there was a question of like, do you want to become a Lyme correspondent for the rest of your life? Because you learn so much about something, you can feel yourself getting pulled in. And there's people who be like, well, maybe you should write a book. And I thought to myself, you know, this has been a stressful year, and I think I'm just going to move on. That was the voice of Taylor Quimby, a producer from New Hampshire Public Radio and the creator of a podcast series entitled Patient Zero, which takes a deep dive into the world of Lyme disease. Earth to Humans senior producer Serena Simons and I have been talking about producing an episode focused on Lyme disease since we learned last year that both of us have contracted the disease. After listening to Taylor's podcast, Patient Zero, we knew that he would be a great guest for Earth to Humans because of the extensive reporting that he conducted on the connections between the climate crisis and the spread of Lyme disease, in addition to his exploration of Lyme's origin and the ongoing controversy surrounding the disease. We also learned that Taylor himself was inspired to produce this series after his own experience dealing with a Lyme diagnosis. So we're all in the same club, but have all had very different experiences with diagnosis and treatment. I'm Matt Podolsky, and this is Earth to Humans. Taylor, I think the first thing we're going to have you do is just introduce yourself. Tell us your name and a little bit about who you are. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Taylor Quimby. Um, I am currently the senior supervising producer of Outside In at New Hampshire Public Radio, and that is an environmental podcast and show um, that kind of runs the gamut of topics. Like, it's not very easily described, but uh, one of the things that I've been saying lately, it's kind of like the enthusiasm of Discovery Channel meets the intellectual nature of public radio. And, and you know, about sometimes it's serious stuff, climate change, um, and then sometimes, you know, just we talk about cool animals and why they're so cool. Oh, I love that. That's our senior producer for Earth to Humans, Serena Simons, who conducted this interview alongside me. I feel like we are kind of um, similar with Earth to Humans, where it's kind of an indescribable sort of hodgepodge of stories, but I feel like ours leans definitely not in the optimistic category. I feel like a lot of our episodes are pretty, <laughs> pretty like, I don't know, existential, uh, can be kind of, kind of a bummer, honestly. Yeah. So I'm glad you're doing, uh, the good work of being optimistic because Matt and I tend to not be. <laughs> well, the, the truth is I wouldn't say that we're optimistic, but I do think that we understand like, you know, um, you have to still be able to have fun on the planet. And there's things that I love about nature. Um, and I want to be able to indulge that love in a non-complicated way sometimes. And that way it gives me the space to be able to like get serious and existential when we need to. So we, we try and balance it that way because we've heard from a lot of folks who, you know, say like, listen, um, when there's climate in the title, we skip those episodes. And so our whole thing is right. like, how do we get folks who don't want to listen to those episodes to feel comfortable doing it? And so it like gives us agency without just freaking us out. Um, so that's that's part of the philosophy behind what we do. But I think there's there's shows for everybody out there. Like there are, there are shows that are just there to be like, this is an accountability show. And what we're going to do is talk about fossil fuel companies and why they are doing very bad things. Yeah. And like we need that just as much as we also need some like just fun shows that never get into serious stuff because, you know, kids develop a relationship with the planet often because of the things that are wonderful and amazing and beautiful. Um, and, you know, you don't take a, a, a five year old and um, like go hard into 
the the deepest, darkest, most existential stuff about climate change. Like you save that for when they're a little bit older. Yeah, ten. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is why we didn't do Howard Zinn's uh, history of the United States at like second grade because kids kids aren't ready for it yet. Yeah, we did a great episode with Matt's son um, a while back where we were talking about kids and climate change and you know how honest you should be how early and how do you navigate, you know, telling them the truth and not kind of giving them these false um, solutions to big problems, you know, like conserving energy by turning the lights off and that's going to fix everything or, you know, recycling, um, you know, which everyone should be doing. But, you know, like there's a bigger, uh, like a bigger boogeyman at play there and so yeah it's i'm I'm glad we're all kind of on the same page with that though like it's it's messy it's complicated but it's interesting it can be fun um yeah i'm curious to know a little bit more about you like aside from your um your role um as a producer like why are what got you interested in the environment and and animals and wildlife and um and also like the topic what we're going to talk about today your your uh, podcast and lyme disease uh, yeah, I mean, I should. I guess I should have mentioned that, huh? <laughs> um, so what got me into the... Well, I mean, the truth is, is that I came into working at NHPR 13 years ago, and I really came to radio because I had graduated college. Um, yeah, I had a mix of interests in philosophy and writing and theater. So, you know, there's, a, there's an element of my life that's always been into performing and music and things like that. Um, but I also, you know, love learning new things and tackling um, subjects that I know nothing about and, and, you know, sort of doing a crash course on it. And so um, I got this job at NHPR, and it was very part-time at the beginning. I started producing on a show called Word of Mouth, which was at the time a daily magazine-style program that covers, like, a whole bunch of different topics. And, you know, I just loved being able to hear – you know, it was it was sort of the first time in my life – that I always felt like I knew what was going on because I was like reading so much and I'm interviewing smart journalists and writers and musicians. And, you know, you're just kind of like overwhelmed almost by this sense of there's so much going on and we're going to try and talk about all of it. Um, And it wasn't until I think 2015 is when our station launched Outside In, the show I work on right now. Um, and I got brought on mostly, you know, as a producer who had been doing radio for a while and therefore had all the radio skills. I mean, I, I wouldn't have called myself, um, you know, like a capital E environmentalist up until this point. I mean, I'm somebody who, like you mentioned, like I care about the world. I've done all the things that I think I'm supposed to do. Um, I, you know, I was a big hiker and still am. Uh, so I live in New Hampshire and I love to hike the White Mountains. I run. Um, So, you know, I have this relationship with the natural world and, you know, we wanted to make a show that I think spoke to people in this middle ground who like really care about the planet, but also aren't the ones reading the latest IPCC report. You know what I mean? Um, So so it's funny because years later now, here I am running the show and I I still think I'm making it uh, for for people in this liminal space, I think, um, because. We all do need to sort of care more about the planet and know more about the planet. Um, but we also, every, everybody needs to be met where they are, I guess. You know, it's like you, you have to you have to start someplace and everybody's at a different place. And so I guess you just make the content that you wish you had a couple of years ago. <laughs> totally. I like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's definitely one of our goals with Earth to Humans as well is to sort of expand the scope of what people view as environmentalism and to show people that yeah no matter who you are or or what you do professionally we all live on this planet right like in a certain sense we we are all environmentalists and i think pretty much any issue you could pull out of a hat you can connect to environmental issues um and i mean speaking of that like let's talk about this other podcast that you produced called patient zero right which is about lyme disease and that's one of our goals with this conversation here is is to make that connection and, and show people, uh, you know, all, all of the sort of many connections between Lyme disease and the environment and climate change and all this stuff. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. But uh, I'm curious to kind of start at the beginning, like what inspired you to, to follow 
the story that you follow. I mean, I mean, introduce us to Patient Zero, and then you know, uh, like, what was the inspiration behind it? Oof, God, Ugh. it's like <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also long enough ago that that like I forget the order of some of the idea generation, but. Um, you know, Patient Zero is a podcast. Uh, I think there were seven original episodes and then a, a, a few bonus episodes as well that are on the feed. Um, ostensibly, it is about Lyme disease, but at a deeper level, you know, it's about epidemiology. It's about medicine. It is about the nature of scientific uncertainty. These are the, like, themes that I really wanted to explore um, because because anybody who knows anything about Lyme disease knows that, like, it's a can of worms, and it can be kind of intimidating, actually, because there are people with, like, very passionate stances on a variety of sides that do not, you know, that don't jive well together. Um, so, you know, I, as I dug in, I started to see, like, if you can understand why it's so complicated, that can offer us a really healthy perspective on why science is so important, but also understanding the limits of what we do and what we don't know um, and coming to terms with that, because, you know, we don't know everything, whether that's about Lyme disease or, as we all know now, about COVID, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about the weird connections there um, that we've kind of learned about. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that working at New Hampshire Public Radio years ago, there had been mention of like, oh, we should do something about Lyme disease. Like New Hampshire is one of, obviously, a number of New England states that have historically had really high rates of Lyme disease. Um, you know, if you grow up here, you inevitably know somebody who is at some stage of having just had Lyme disease or has like, you know, arthritis problems that they associate with Lyme disease. And so these stories are kind of in the ether, even if you've never encountered it directly. Um, and so, you know, we had talked about it as being one of those things that's got a very local, um, a local issue that would be good for New Hampshire public radio audiences, but also could be something that we build out that would interest folks in a much, you know, in a much wider um, scale and audience. So that that had been in the background, and then in 2017, uh, both myself and a colleague, um, my colleague Hannah McCarthy, who works on another podcast we do called Civics 101, uh, we both got Lyme disease in like a three-week span of time, and we just had these dramatically different experiences, both in diagnosis and then how, you know, the actual illness, how it progressed, and then how long the entire sort of uh, uh, saga took for each of us. It was just so different that, you know, anybody observing would be like, this doesn't seem like they're even talking about the same thing. And, you know, that that was the beginning of my own, like, ooh, I'm going to start doing lots of reading. And and eventually it started to sort of shape what became Patient Zero. It, well, we're all in the Lyme gang, apparently. I mean, and, and Matt and I both have Lyme <laughs> disease, and it's both of us have super different everything you just said, like the diagnosis of it, the treatment of it, the long-term, yeah. short-term symptoms of it. Um, and if, it, it, if I could reach across and give you some sort of special handshake through the Zoom, I would. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, but it's it's it can be um it can, at least for me. So like I I even last night was having sort of arthritis issues that I have attributed to my long-term Lyme issues. Um, you know, as I was kind of like taking notes and preparing for this episode, so I'm like it's very timely and Matt and I you know, Matt brought this po your podcast to my attention because he had just hiked the Appalachian Trail and he got Lyme on the trail. Um, yeah. And it was just kind of like forefront in our, you know, like our, our bodies and how we were feeling. And um, Matt, I mean, you can jump in and talk about like your symptoms, but I got a tick bite in 2016 um, while I was, you know, my my first year up here um, in Lake Tahoe in California, where people don't really associate Lyme with our ticks. We have soft body ticks and, you know, Lyme isn't really like the first thing people go to. Um, yeah. They attributed it to this thing called tick-borne relapsing fever, um, where my fever would spike and then it would come down. But I had to be hospitalized for a, a little while and and then I just oh, had gosh, these lingering. I'm so sorry. That yeah. sounds that sounds really awful. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks. But you know, like I love the podcast because it dives into 
how messy Lyme is because the symptoms can just you know, span this really broad spectrum. It can affect people so differently. Um, and then, you know, like the the sort of professionals that are doing this research or, you know, doctors that are supposed to be helping you, they can't even agree on Lyme being a real thing or, you know, like having these symptoms be attributed to Lyme. So it can be very frustrating and isolating and um, confusing. So I, I felt that this podcast was, it just went through such a, an interesting timeline from the, you know, the, the first alarm bells that were ringing to where we are now with Lyme. I just, I thought it was a great, great um, story that you wove together. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I got to say it was the most stressful project I think I've ever done because I I felt the weight of so many people who have been through experiences like what you're describing. Um, and, you know, I think part of the part of the fabric of Lyme is people searching for answers and not finding them. And, you know, I knew that, you know, I, I wasn't going to have some sort of like final, oh, here's here's the solution, here's the trick, here's the thing nobody's telling you. You know, it is it is really complicated and you have to like go into it with a pretty open mind and being willing, be, being willing to accept, you know, like hold different things in your mind at the same time. Um, and so just knowing what a, cha- what a challenge it was. Like, you know, there's still things that I look back at and I'm like, ah, you know, I, I could have done a better job describing this or things that I'm like, well, you know, we'll see what happens in 10 years because, um, you know, the, the science changes and uh, things that we think we know at one point, you know, who knows what, um, what we'll discover in, in a little while. Along those lines, like one of the things that was most interesting to me as I was listening to Patient Zero was sort of the initial recognition of it as a disease and sort of the story behind how that happened was so fascinating to me because it involved citizen science, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and it you know, it's like we talk about citizen science a lot. We're not normally thinking of it in the context of like, um, like medical science. Yeah. Well, and I, and I should say that when the idea started to really form, I started reading about, you know, the the origin of the discovery of Lyme in, in the mid-70s. Um, and one of the first things I thought about was, gosh, this was just at that point where, like, many of these primary players are still alive. They can still tell this story firsthand. Um, but, you know, that's not going to be the case forever. And so, especially when you're in audio journalism, the idea of getting people on tape and hearing their voices telling these stories while you still can became really, really important to me. Um, unfortunately, one of one of the folks I would have loved to speak to the most is a woman named Polly Murray, who anybody who gets into the Lyme story has heard her name, I think, because she, she was this, uh, this person who, you know, through really dogged determination and in the face of a lot of dismissal from people in the medical community, really persevered and pushed this issue forward. She was living in Lyme, Connecticut. So this is, of course, where Lyme comes from, uh, the, the, the name of the disease. Uh, and she has four kids. She was there with her husband. She's an artist. Um, and they they all basically started to have this constellation of symptoms um, things that we would recognize now, you know, swollen joints, um, aches and pangs, fatigue. Um, she, in particular, went through, you know, sort of waves of, uh, of illness and, uh, you know, saw a number of doctors who really said, you know, basically, you're just depressed, Polly. Like, this isn't, this isn't a real thing. <laughs> Classic. Um, yeah, yeah. Something that so many people will recognize, right? Um, and, you know, to be fair, at this stage... You know, there there wasn't Lyme disease didn't exist yet in the in the literature, and so some of these folks um, they're they're pointing to other things. One of the things that came up frequently was called JRA, um, which is juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Which uh, basically you had a bunch of kids with arthritis, and that is an actual disease, but it is incredibly rare. And there was you know way too many cases in this small area in Connecticut popping up. 
Um, like I said, she's, she pushed the issue. She tracked the family's illnesses on her calendars and in diaries um, and ultimately uh, against the advice of her family doctor. Um, she ended up calling the Connecticut State Health Authorities and got connected with a doctor uh, by the name of Dr. Alan Steer. And then the two of them kind of collaborated. She was able to bring her notes and, and give all of the information she had gathered to him. Uh, he and a number of other people, obviously, I'm like c condensing a lot of history here, uh, went on to do the initial investigations that kind of outlined uh, what then was called, uh, what's called uh, Lyme arthritis. Uh, for a period of time, um, but you know, you just you you hear her st story, um, and it has so many echoes with what patients are still sometimes told today. That you know, she was told she was a hypochondriac. Um, she was told that it was an issue because she was depressed, and she, you know, she needed to go play more sports, um, get out there, be more active. <laughs> and, Did he tell her to play tennis know, or something like that? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I I can't remember all the details, but I think it was also, you know, it's not just one thing. It was wave after wave of dismissal. Um, and, you know, I, I think from that early stage, you see with Lyme that there is a community of concerned people who are very active in shaping the discussion about what Lyme disease is and how it ought to be treated. Um, and I think that that has been, in some cases, a very positive thing. I mean, it helps to build community where you have people who aren't finding answers um, in the medical community. You also have, um, you know, you have you have basically a, a bigger pool of resources um, when you have more people who are trying to learn everything they can about it. Um, but you've also seen, um, you've also seen the door open for people who take advantage of those same. Patients, and I, I think that's because when you don't have as much trust in the authority figures, who quote unquote in this case would be like the medical community, um, it means that you're you're naturally open to going in different directions. And there are bad actors who have stepped into this space and preyed on folks who are not finding good answers, but are willing to pay for really dubious treatments. Yeah. Um, Paul, I mean, sort of from like a feminist perspective, like Polly Murray's story really struck a chord with me because like, you know, in memorial women and our ailments and our problems and our issues like have just been attributed to like women's hysteria. And like you said, like being a hypochondriac. Absolutely. And, um, I really love that she kind of put her foot down and said no, I'm going to take this in a very sort of scientific approach. I'm going to document, 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 and basically like leave no room for, um, you know, qu questioning her methods or her um, her agenda or why she was doing it. She was just a mom who was worried about herself and her kids and her family and like her community. And um, the fact that, you know, her own doctor was like, yeah, don't don't take this any further. You're just, you know, let's let's keep it quiet. You know, like just how how men everywhere tell women to just like don't rock the yeah. boat. Don't you know? Yeah. Um, but she was defiant in that way. And, and I, I think she's a, a, a huge hero um, to to do that. But, you know, the fact that a, a lot of this um, initial research, I, I, you know, I credit her for going, um, you know, up the channel and, and getting uh you know, doctors involved and people to actually research this. But the fact that it came from her, just a person and also just a woman, um, I think has kind of like infected the the perceptions of Lyme even to this day. You know, like we can't escape, even though there have been um, there's so much evidence to back it up. And um, just the fact that it came from a woman and it came from uh, a, a non um like medical professional or scientist, I think that is pervasive today and, and, and lends to a lot of that sort of pseudoscience. And, you know, I, I watched um, a documentary on Netflix. It was a series called Unwell, and it was all of these uh, sort of different uh, approaches to things that people have uh have done to to cure various things like essential oils like it, 
in taking and ingesting essential oils, which we know to be very dangerous, but there's this huge, uh, you know, these, these huge like sort of uh, pyramid schemes that have evolved out of it where people are, you know, sort of evangelizing the intake of essential oils to cure all your ailments. And uh, yeah. one of them was an episode about this, uh, this artist I actually follow who has Lyme was getting no relief, but she found this, um, this group called, uh, something something about the, the the holy hive or something like that but it, they use bee stings to help with um you know some of her arthritis symptoms and they claim that you know these bee stings can have all these healing properties and you know and I, i'll be honest like when i'm in a really bad flare-up sometimes i'll be like you know i've tried everything like maybe it's time to give some of these yeah wacky <laughs> things a go but um yeah no i just kind of wanted to mention like polly uh, big hero and um i'm glad that you got to kind of talk to some of these initial folks like you were mentioning before it was too late to talk to them because you know that oral history would would be lost uh forever yeah one i mean one of my favorite interviews was with her son todd who um uh, among her kids uh was the one who kind of had the worst set of symptoms um and just the clearest uh, case of, you know, really complicated, uh, long-lasting Lyme stuff. And, you know, he's grown up to be um, a doctor. He's a physician now. And so, he, you know, he's one of these folks who has a really interesting uh, foot in both worlds um, from the professional medical side, but also, you know, a very personal history in which he watched his mother uh, dismissed um, in her pursuit of of uncovering uncovering the truth and and you know I think I think that like I've, I mentioned before he's one of these folks who you know he has to figure out how to hold hold this complicated mess in both hands knowing that um, you know often when it comes to medicine uh, it's just not as cut and dry as we think it is when we're kids you know you like grow up and you think that you go to the doctor and they figure out what the problem is and they give you the medicine and that's how it works. And you get old enough to be like, oh, there are so many things that we, you know, we have a Latin name for the diagnosis or the symptoms, but we don't even understand what's happening inside the body. I remember um, my son, a few years back, he had, um, he basically got like a, a mosquito bite and it just wouldn't go away. And it was this big, really awful mosquito bite or some, you know, some sort of insect bite. Um, it wasn't Lyme disease. You know, we went we went through some other stuff, but like it was just itchy and it would not go away. And we saw this like cascading series of dermatologists. And at one point, you know, I actually had three doctors in a room looking through a book of rat, like looking through a book of images of rashes trying to match his bite. And eventually he was like, well, I think um, I think it's this. And I forget what it was. It was uh, it was just Latin for red ring. And um <laughs> And, and you know, like he, he really didn't know. I mean, he sent me to somebody else. And ultimately, like, you know, the, the, the doctors were very helpful. He was treated for it. It did eventually go away. It wasn't a huge, huge issue for him. But it just goes to show you, like, gosh, sometimes they're just trying to figure it out, too. Um, so how I don't know. How do we how does the everyday do person figure that out? Yeah. yeah. And, and how do we have faith in in our, you know, whether it's our doctors or our institutions when we know that. Um, even the most educated people are sometimes kind of rooting around in the dark. Yeah. But I think that veil remains until it's tested, you know, until you have to go through it yourself or your child or someone, you know, who's getting, um, who's not getting answers and it becomes this mysterious, mysterious thing. Uh, you, you kind of maintain that sort of mystique and that, um, doctors know everything and they can help you. And I mean, I certainly felt that way before I went through all of this. And it was kind of um, a big shock when yeah. when I wasn't getting that. And I know for a lot of folks too, it, it's, it's disheartening and it's confusing. I really think that, you know, the past few years, um, the number of people who have had this experience um, of, of, of sort of being disorientated by um, by a medical issue where where you know this this like wait who knows what's going on why isn't this easy why don't they know what's you know what's happening to me um, I think that really changed with covid um, and I just and I just sort of think 
you know, we all went through this experience of like, okay, I tested it, it's positive, or is it, you know, it's I, I have the symptoms, my, my, my partner is positive, but I'm getting a negative test. Do I have it? Don't I have it? Um, and then, of course, you know, long COVID becomes this thing where, what if I get long COVID and certain terminology like brain fog, which of course, in the Lyme community, brain fog is just a, a phrase that a lot of people know. Um, I had not heard of it outside of, um, outside of, specific medical communities like Lyme and chronic fatigue. Um, but now brain fog is something that like lots of people have heard of and have experienced. And so, and, I mean, and just look too at the, you know, the CDC and their response to COVID where, you know, I think a lot of people were left wanting um, for more information and clearer information. And, you know, there are some very, very legitimate um, concerns that can be lobbed at the CDC and other medical professionals, but we also saw people, you know, throwing really dangerous, you know, untested treatments into the mix because of a lack of faith in the science and the medicine. And that's not good either. Like, we, you know, we don't want people drinking bleach. Um, but uh, but you can see how you can see just how the whole ecosystem um gets really messy when there is a lack of trust or a lack of faith. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think like a, a lot of, there was a lot of frustration, I think that as a society, we all experienced as we were going through that and like trying to figure out like what is misinformation and what isn't, or, you know, what can, yeah. what can, you know, what can we trust? To what extent can we trust what the CDC is telling us? Right. Um, and, and, but there was a lot of learning, I think that we all went through as, uh, COVID was playing out these past few years. And I think like one of the interesting things about listening to patient zero post COVID was, you know, especially in, in the introduction, like in the first episode, there's a lot of, um, sort of, information that you share that was necessary pre-covid and is not no longer necessary post-covid right because there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of stuff yeah. but and it was like it was a really interesting experience to listen to it because it's like oh my gosh like our our society has changed so much, so in, much. in this in this one regard you know what i mean yeah. um and you know and and you've also like you you've brought up a, a couple of times like some of the similarities between Lyme and COVID. Um, I, I, I guess I wonder, like, what that experience was like for you going through you mean the, the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah, like going through the pandemic and lockdowns and, and, and that experience, like having just done this deep dive into Lyme. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. So I, in the in the course of reporting patient zero, you know, I had met all of these epidemiologists and doctors, and I was like following them all on Twitter and in somewhat regular conversation with some of these folks. And so I was like watching the COVID, um, the COVID trackers before I would say most people were, you know, like I was at that stage where I was like, Listen, folks, I think this is going to be a really serious problem and like our lives are going to get upended. And people would be like, well, what are you talking about? It's, you know, it's, it's, that's in China. And and or they'd be like, oh, really? You think so? And I and 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 yet the conversation was so hypothetical, like it just didn't go anywhere. Um, and then I literally spoke at a CDC tick conference as like a keynote speaker. Um, I think it was the like first week of March um, in 2020. And so you can imagine what, what the atmosphere there was. Everybody was like, so this is the last time we're going to see people for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I went back to work and I was basically trying to like raise the alarm at the radio station um, because I was like, we need to prepare for what is going to be a dramatic shift in both the coverage that we we need to do and our actual personal lives. Um, and so, you know, obviously I was right about the just sort of basic sense that this was a life-changing event. And for a period afterwards, I think there was a lot of people in my immediate circle who thought I was like some sort of COVID prophet and were like, Taylor, what's going to happen next? And I was like, listen, this exhaust, like I'm, that was it. That's all I knew was that we needed to buy some toilet paper before everybody else did. Um, <laughs> Now I'm just like riding the wave like the rest of you, hoping that this, you know, ends at some point. 
I mean, I do think that, um, like I said, you know, there were these echoes as we went through the pandemic. And, and truly, the first time I heard long COVID and brain fog, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a really terrible, terrible thing if as many people as I think are going to are going to experience the same level of Lyme uncertainty um, that folks uh, folks who who've been like trying to figure out what's going on with Lyme disease for a long time have. Um, I, you know, I, I actually think that uh, I don't want to say that there's a silver lining to the pandemic because that's not the way it works. But um, because so many more people have had COVID and more people are getting long COVID, I actually do think it's going to really push and advance research into a number of autoimmune issues and um, these diseases where people have just felt so alienated and isolated and dismissed for so long. Um, uh, and, and hopefully it was going to really move the needle on, you know, treatments um, and understanding. You know, that being said, it's not like I've seen over the past couple of years such a massive revolution in thinking already that, um, that I think that's going to happen like overnight. But but I do think it's going to happen a lot faster than it otherwise would have. So, I mean, you know, like I said, it's not a silver lining, but maybe uh, maybe it's a positive thing. I'm also just like picturing you at a tick conference. Do they have like <laughs> they have like tick merch or like what's that like? <laughs> no, no, this was a, it was not as fancy as you might imagine. I mean, this was like a lot of um, probably uh, PhD candidates and postdocs presenting various very specific research on um, you know various tick monitoring programs or you know very specific little projects. Um, there was a series of speakers and there was some really interesting stuff, but. Uh, but no, it wasn't like some sort of um, Mr. Burns-esque tick symposium where all the the big brains of the medical community get together and, and have it all figured out. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big similarities between COVID and Lyme, too, is like these are both long COVID and Lyme. Uh, they're both invisible illnesses, um, you know, and I think we've just kind of um, crossed, you know, a certain threshold with you know, other invisible illnesses like um, mental health issues, depression, mm. anxiety, mm -hmm. and having those get taken seriously, um, you know, after years and years of people dealing with that um, without medication or therapy or any kind of support, um, you know, and I, I think it's, it's something, I think you're right, like I think COVID is because more people are going to have some of these autoimmune issues, invisible illnesses that, you know, you look at somebody and you go, oh, you look fine, but you feel like shit on the inside, you know? And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think more people are going to kind of put their foot down and be like, no, like, I I, I don't want to keep living like this. And, you know, I, I need, you know, some sort of reasonable, um, you know, almost like disability for, for work. I know a lot of folks that have, um, you know, my friend has chronic fatigue and all these other autoimmune issues and she's a biologist and she has really had to kind of turn her whole workflow upside down because she just can't get out of bed sometimes. And it's hard to make that case, you know, to your employer or whoever it is to, to be accommodated for some of these things because it really upends your life. But, you know, I'm optimistic too, that, that this will be, you know, it might take some time, but this will be um, something we'll look back on as kind of a turning point for some of this stuff for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, one, one thing that I came up against uh, doing this reporting again and again was, you, you know, the fact that so many people in medicine and science, you know, they they are really relying on objective measures that they can, you know, that they can um, see on a test strip or uh, can count, you know, wh whatever, uh, you know, whatever sort of thing in your blood to be able to say this is what's going on. And I think a lot of the illnesses... Um, uh, that you're talking about that share uh, sh share this problem of having people who aren't believed, who aren't taken seriously. Um, you know, often these are illnesses where either we're not there yet because it's it's really complex and we don't actually understand the underlying physical mechanisms, um, or uh, there's so many potential like differential diagnoses that people kind of go through the rounds where they keep getting pushed to another thing. And maybe it's this and maybe it's this and maybe it's this. 
Um, and I do understand, you know, when you look at, for, for example, other scientific fields, it's really easy to understand, like, okay, well, you need to be able to have some sort of objective measure to understand and, and to state some sort of scientific fact. Say we're talking about, like, physics and the planet, you know, like, you know, we get like, okay, we need to be able to see something to say that this isn't just theory, it's true. But in medicine, um, that's that's been uh, a real a real problem for so so many people um, who, like I said, just get kind of tossed around or tossed out, frankly. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think like there's so many unknowns. You know, I mean, both in the world of Lyme and in the world of COVID. I, I mean, with regard to Lyme disease, though, it it does seem like early diagnosis is is a crucial factor, right? Oh, big, big time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that's such an important piece of this picture because, you know, you started off, Taylor, by explaining that, you know, sort of like one of the motivating factors for you to take this dive into Lyme disease and to produce this podcast patient zero was the experience that you and and your colleague at new hampshire public radio had of of having these two very different experiences with diagnosis right and and the way that doctors treated this and you know serena and i like have sort of uh a a similar thing going on right (laughs) And, and you know like i had the experience of feeling symptoms you know like i mean i didn't initially connect it to Lyme disease in my mind, right? And I mean, it was it was post-COVID, so I was taking COVID tests and thought that that's what was going on. But after, you know, testing negative for COVID a bunch and the symptoms persisting, you know, yeah, there was something clicked in my brain of like, oh my gosh, this is probably Lyme. You yeah. know, I, I had just hiked, you know, this was last summer when I was uh, through hiking the Appalachian Trail. I just hiked through Connecticut. And, you know, when I went in and saw a doctor at, at an urgent care facility, the first thing she said to me was, this is guaranteed, like Lyme disease or tick-borne illness for sure. Like, we're going to do this blood test, but it's pretty common to get false negatives. So, like, start taking, I'm giving you the prescription for the antibiotics, start taking them immediately and like we're gonna you're gonna get a call back about the blood test but basically disregard it like whether it's positive or negative like take the full schedule of antibiotics and you know it turned out to be really important that she said that to me because when i got the call back from the nurse the nurse told me that um the blood test was negative and that i should stop taking the antibiotics and I was like, well, uh, wait a second. Like, that's not what the doctor told me. And I told her what the doctor said. And she's like, oh, okay, listen to the doctor. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, if the doctor hadn't made that comment, then I yeah. would have been, you know, I would have like been on the antibiotics for two days and and then like got off of them. And like, who knows like what would have happened? Yeah. You know, um, but like, it, you know, I, so so that was crucial, right? And And I had that immediate recognition from the doctor with that really good advice um and you know like serena your experience is like the, the opposite, the opposite of that, right yeah. <laughs> taylor you also like i mean you had this experience as well but then you also you know interviewed patients for your podcast that had you know that sort of showcased like this the full spectrum of uh, you know reactions that that patients get and you know i i, I mean biases within uh the medical community, I think, play a big role in, in what's going on with Lyme disease and whether or not it's diagnosed early and correctly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that there are so many layers of biases um, that it's one of the things that makes it really complicated. I mean, there's definitely a regional aspect. And I think what you just told me, Matt, there are more doctors here who say that sort of thing, who like, you know, in in a high uh, Lyme rate area, know that, first of all, you've got different people in the medical community that have different opinions. Um, Also, they're kind of like, yeah, I understand that the test isn't perfect. So like my, you know, I think that you have Lyme. 
we're going to do the test, but like, let's just be precautious uh, one way or another. But, you know, you, Serena, you said you're out west, right? Mm-hmm. In California. Yeah. And Right. So you've got you've got way lower Lyme rates there and you're just not going to have doctors who see it as frequently and they're not going to be as prepared to navigate this like internally complicated world where different people, nurses, doctors, what have you, have different opinions about how to do it. So right off the bat, you're, you're at a disadvantage and a bias that's geographic. Um, but, you know, talking about uh, all the other things, you know, like I said, Doctors want an objective measure. So if you have a very well-defined rash that fits the sort of Lyme stereotype, you know, right off the bat, again, you will almost certainly get um, diagnosed correctly if you are, you know, in one of these New England states, for example. Um, But not all rashes uh, look exactly the same. And in fact, some people don't get any rashes at all. I think a big piece of, you know, talking about bias, when I did this story initially, I remember the CDC website, you know, it was all white skin that showed, they had a whole example of a number of rashes that showed, you know, some some slight variations in how it might look. But, you know, there was just no melanated skin in these, you know, like uh, cut off squares of an arm or a leg. Um, and, you know, just knowing how many other huge issues that people of color face in getting adequate health care, either because there are actually different things that um, require, uh, you know, some sort of specific interventions. You know, you talk about sickle cell, for example, um, or because of racial prejudice in the actual medical system or the underlying studies that back up uh, so many of our interventions. There's just there's just layer after layer of biases, uh, whether it's against people of color or women that make it much harder in this world to get effective treatment or even just feel like you are being paid attention to. You know, the, the world that we live in is one where um, folks uh, of all all backgrounds, ages, sexes are going to experience sometimes uh, uncertainty in the clinic um, or in the doctor's office. But um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't feel a lot worse for folks who are just being dismissed outright um, for, for reasons that they absolutely should not be. Yeah. And I will just say, you know, as a woman, as a woman of color and as a woman of color who lives in a state that doesn't have high cases of Lyme. Um, yeah, no, it, it was a, it was a real challenge. And I think now I have a, a female doctor who is very empathetic and believes me and, you know, wants to figure this out, I think that goes a long way, you know? And so I think if you're out there and you're, you have, you know, maybe it's not even Lyme disease, maybe you have something else going on and you're just kind of feeling unheard, you know, get a different doctor, find somebody who's going to advocate for you. And, you know, but, but the other thing I'll say too is, the, a lot of these tests are so expensive. You know, I had so much blood work done over the last few years and scans and all kinds of stuff. And it's just added up into the thousands of dollars of just medical, you know, just just stuff kind of going by the wayside because it doesn't d- definitively say one thing or the other. It'll flag for lupus, but not this. It'll flag for Lyme, but not enough Lyme. And so... You know, you're just kind of left with a lot of medical debt and no answers. But, you know, I think if you can find the balance where you're, you have a, a medical professional or a group of professionals who are advocating for you and believing you, um, you know, I, I think I think that's a good place to start. The most interesting part, well, not the whole thing was interesting, the whole podcast, but like one of the one of the main uh, parts that really stuck with me was this discussion of climate change and what this will mean for the tick population in the United States and how that's going to impact um, not only humans, but wildlife and all these other diseases like chronic wasting disease and deer populations and um you know, it, it's it's pretty scary to think about, you know, rising temperatures, um, more ticks and and some of the solutions that are coming up with bioengineering. Um, and I wonder if you, you know, could just kind of talk about uh, what that was like to do that research and, you know, kind of how you walked away feeling about some of these proposed ideas in in the face of climate change. 
Oh yeah, sure. I mean, and I'll be I'll be honest. Uh, this has been a few years now, and I'm sure that there has been some really interesting science that's come out in the past few years uh, since I put this out. I did a little bit of a cursory um, read this morning, but uh, I would encourage anybody to to do some of their own research here. But I mean, at, at a basic level, um, you know, climate change dominoes through every aspect of our lives in some way or another, right? Like we, you know, we know this. It, there's there's almost nothing it doesn't touch. Um, when you really like dig into the details and and yet it's often you know a more complicated picture in, in the sense that like um it's not always just getting hotter that some places get colder or like you know there's more extreme weather but that doesn't always mean that it's just drought it can be you know so it's it's this chaotic mess and i think similarly the way um that climate change is impacting uh, tick populations and uh, the geography of where they are able to live, um, as well as the other animals that play key roles in the spread of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illness. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a picture in which it's just going to get worse. So, for example, um, you know, basically ticks like um, they like it warm and they like it moist which is a gross combination of <laughs> things to say about ticks. We're already talking about something pretty disgusting. Uh, but, but, you know, in that sense, um, there are places in the South, for example, that have, you know, seen a lot of dry, arid drought conditions um, or a little out West. And those are places where you might see tick rates um, and Lyme incidence rates in those ticks going down. Uh, however, you also see uh, a real rise in both the number of ticks and the number of ticks that have Lyme uh, as we spread up north into Canada, where previously weather conditions were just not great um, uh, for ticks, uh, so you know it's not to say that they weren't there, but you know you've been you've been seeing a real measurable rise in Lyme rates in uh, southern parts of Canada. So you know I think that's um, a key point here, and it's and it's not just the ticks that give you Lyme disease. There's uh, and I can't even remember them now, but when I was digging into this part of the story, you know, there's all sorts of ticks that we like don't think about and they carry different diseases and many of them are moving they are they are exploring new places in the world you know clap them on the back good for the, good for them um, but there are these really terrible consequences of seeing uh, tick-borne illnesses in new places or new tick-borne illnesses that we are just still identifying um, you know, the other big pieces of the puzzle here, you could connect to climate change, but it's also, it's not just about climate change. Uh, development is a huge, huge piece of the puzzle here. Um, you know, when you take a big patch of forest and you start cutting little, uh, you know, letting, little, um, oh God, what are they called at the, in the suburbs, you know, at the end of a road where it's a circle at the Cold end? Cul-de-sac? Thank you. When you start <laughs> cutting, uh, you know, just cul-de-sac after cul-de-sac into these wooded areas, those are spaces that white-footed mice absolutely love. And those mice are a huge, huge part of um, the life cycle for these ticks that spread Lyme disease and act as reservoirs for the disease so that uh, ticks that aren't yet infected with Lyme disease will bite a mouse that has uh, the, the um, bacteria and then get Lyme disease or they don't get Lyme disease they get they get the bacteria um, but uh, but you can see there's this sort of you know there's a cycle and it requires all these different pieces and so you know you could probably surmise that with um, with climate migration especially uh, I think a lot of folks moving into the Northeast um, development is going to continue or increase um, and you will see again better conditions for, for these really important vectors of Lyme disease that could continue uh, to, to change the way that it's um, moving about our communities. So I, I guess those are just a couple of the big points. Um, but I think that there are so many ways that our societies and environments and diseases like Lyme disease are just all inextricably intertwined. Um, and it, in a way, like... This is going to be. This is going to sound really messed up to say, but it is sort of amazing. Like I did find myself, like in awe of the interconnectedness of nature in this way, um, where again I think when I was younger I just separated illness and disease from 
society and environments in a way that's very silly when I think back on it, because obviously these things are interconnected. But you can really see it with a disease like Lyme, um, where the environment plays just such an important role. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I had kind of a dark fascination with COVID, just watching how fast it spread and, and how virulent, you know, it was and the the, the way it adapted to our vaccines. And I mean, it's, it's, it's all fascinating. Um, the, the one thing that kind of struck me was there was sort of this like island community that you talked about in the podcast um, where they were going to vaccinate, um, you know, these animals and, and just sort of see like do a trial run on this island because it's kind of isolated. But, you know, there was a lot of input from the community, a lot of pushback from the community and a lot of um, unknowns, even from the scientists, sort of like what. If, if they did release all of these um, engineered mice or whatever it was that, um, y- you know, could have these bigger effects. And we know from experience of, of kind of intervening in nature that that doesn't always go according to plan. I just wondered how how you were, you know, reporting and navigating that and, and all the different um, stakeholders and trying to please everybody. And, and I would just feel frustrated feeling like, wow, nothing's going to happen because nobody, not everyone's bought, buying into this. And if we don't have buy-in from everyone, we're not going to make anybody happy and we're not going to get anything done. Yeah. So this is like the, this is like the Jurassic Park style um, segment at the very end of the podcast where we really talk about this kind of like techno solution that sounds both like sort of fantastical and kind of amazing, like almost like a utopian solution. But it was this project called Mice Against Ticks. Um, It was taking place on the island of Nantucket, which is off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts and has an incredibly high uh, Lyme rate, Um, one of the the highest in the country, um, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, yeah, they, they basically... There's this this geneticist um, named Kevin S. Velt, and he has this idea that we could use CRISPR, which is this gene editing technology that's been in the news for for years now because of its sort of like Jurassic Park level um, intensity, I guess. Uh, and you know, he he was basically saying like, what if we could genetically engineer mice so that they can't get Lyme disease anymore? And this very important piece of the Lyme disease puzzle gets removed from the equation and and all of a sudden it kind of like maybe just grinds to a halt. Um, and the way that the way that the the gene editing here works is that he was trying to put these different options on the table for the community um, so that they could sort of pick and choose, you know, one of these potential Lyme interventions. He he actually was taking the most dramatic one and the thing that I think you're talking about, Serena, that sounds quite scary, which is um, modifying the mice in such a way that this genetic trait will cascade through all the generations forever and will potentially like affect all mice across the United States or maybe the planet one day. Um, and he basically said that this is a this is a technology that is too powerful. We will not do this. Um, although, I, you know, I'm sure in the back of his mind, he was probably like, but it would be really interesting if we did. <laughs> um, but he was he was sort of proposing a a lesser but similar technology that um, the the gene that would get passed down would eventually like kind of work its way through the mice's system. I'm paraphrasing here, and I don't remember all the details, but it basically wouldn't um, domino across all mice everywhere. Um, that being said, yeah, I mean it's still it's still this like really dramatic sort of strange solution, and understandably, people in Nantucket feel pretty. Um, uh, conflicted about it, I suppose. I mean, a lot of people there know what a problem Lyme is and desperately want something to be done. Um, you know, there are other solutions. When you look at an island, you could kill all the deer, which play another pivotal um, role in this sort of tentpole of uh, of ecosystems that produce and, and create Lyme. Um, but, you know, that's also really complicated from a social perspective. Like, just they, they've done deer hunts on Nantucket. They did not go well. Um, it is a small island when you've got hunters just, like, walking across these grasslands just shooting deer um, in people's backyards. Uh, it was it was a thing. So, anyway, this this I mean, this last episode, we do try and look at, you know, these different interventions, big and small. Um, and I just don't think that there was any silver bullet. Um, you know, we see how 
how the world is changing because of climate change. We can make guesses about what that's going to mean for Lyme disease and other tick-borne illness. Um, we have these different ways of trying to intervene, but all of them have uh, pros and cons and in, in many cases are just not as effective as we'd like. Um, and then so much of it seems to come back down to our own behavior and the idea that like we could really use a vaccine and you got to put your socks over your pants. And there's there's something about all this science and tech, and then it comes back down to socks. It feels a little disconcerting, but it it was maybe the biggest takeaway for me is like, I need to do what I can and teach people to help them not get Lyme disease through personal um, personal choices like that. You know, should be our title, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I love that socks over pants. Um, I mean, yeah, like to kind of wrap things up, it's that's that's definitely the direction I was going. Right. It's like there's no silver bullet. Um, and, you know, we've talked already about like, you know, some of the things that hum that us as humans, like behavior that we could change that would uh, that, that would benefit this scenario. Right. I mean, I think the key one is is de development right and and making smarter decisions uh in the way that you know we build human communities at this sort of intersection with natural spaces but i mean this has already impacted the way that we recreate in the outdoors is is that is is that like just the direction we're heading where it just has to like like more awareness right is is that the solution of like socks over pants. And then I, I would say also like finding ways to reduce biases in the medical community so that it's more common for doctors to, to do that test right at the outset. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you make a good point, which is like anything here, you've got to think about it in each stage, right? So you want to prevent the disease um, and that has to do with uh, some of the things that you're just talking about, socks, and and also like how we manage our backyards, for example. There are there are material things you can do to try and reduce like leaf litter on the edge of your property, for example, where ticks love to hang out. And you know, if you've got kids, you don't want to put your playground like right on the edge of the the, the backyard. So these are some of the like really practical things that you can do to try and prevent people from getting Lyme disease more. But then there's the, okay, how do we treat it as quickly as possible when people do get it? And so that's where you talk about diagnosis or prevent it through vaccines. And then um, how do we improve and understand the disease better so that we can do treatments when people are having a really hard time and they've already done antibiotics and they're still suffering from a constellation of symptoms. So there's like all this and, you know, the, the, there's, a, there's so much there. You could do another whole podcast about it, right? Um, as far as like the outdoor community um, and how this intersects with, you know, the way we think about being out in the world, I mean, it definitely like I I get freaked out more when I feel like if I if I walk through some tall grass and I pull a bunch of ticks off, I'm definitely like super wigged out, super duper wigged out now. But it hasn't actually stopped me from being outside at all. Um, and, you know, when you look at the pandemic millions more people were driven onto trails and outside because they couldn't go to the bars or hang out in restaurants anymore. And I think, you know, a big part of it is going to be um, awareness in the same way that we need to teach people how to be safe on, on trails and also how to um, be good stewards of the environment as they recreate in the outdoors. Um, you know, this is just needs to get folded into that because as far as I can tell, people wanting to be outside and doing stuff, you know, that's gotten a lot more popular and I don't think that's going to change. I, I, I see more people camping, more people hiking, um, in the future. So, and, and, you know, like, I think that's a good thing. Like I'm, it would make me very sad if increasing Lyme rates, kept people indoors all the time. I think that would be the, a mistaken way to, to react. Um, there are so many threats, um, health threats in our, in our lives, indoors and out of doors. Um, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to discourage kids from being able to play outside or parents thinking that they can't um, rake the leaves 
I don't know. It's tough. It th- these are some of the trade-offs that we make. I still want to live a good life and the past few years I've had to really think in new ways about what is important to me and how do I live in a dangerous world um more safely but also when do I decide to accept greater risk for the purpose of family or community or mental health um these are not easy trade-offs and um and yet they're ones that we have to think about and make all the time and that's not going to stop That was our conversation with Taylor Quimby from New Hampshire Public Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Taylor's podcast production work, we'll have links to both Patient Zero and Outside In on our show notes page for this episode. Check out earthtohumanspod.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a special Halloween episode. Earth to Humans producer Hannah Mulvaney has been working on an exciting and spooky episode about water monsters, witches, and ghosts, with some backstory about the pagan origins of Halloween. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Serena Simons, Hannah Mulvaney, and me, Matt Podolsky. Music from this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, check out our website for a full list of credits earth to humans pod.com. 